Successful investing is very hard because of two things. Number one, investing is a get-rich-slow scheme. And number two, investing requires self-mastery. To be honest, you'll have to wait generations for meaningful investing outcomes. To demonstrate this, in episode one, Ben discussed a long-term compounding example. He showed how a simple index fund investing method using just an average salary could produce a billion dollars in three generations. Three generations is the definition of a get-rich-slow scheme. Then, in episode two, Tom used the delayed discounting theory to explain how human nature makes this long time period very hard to deal with. He also gave us some advice about how to master ourselves in order to reach the goal. One idea was to harness the reinforcement effect of dopamine through a schedule of periodic rewards tied to investing action rather than outcomes. This would break this long time period up into shorter periods and rewards would be issued to reinforce good behavior regardless of the outcome. He also introduced a mnemonic, SMARTER GOALS. These are specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-bound. Upon achieving the goal, we can then evaluate and review them. He also said to use episodic future thinking, a form of visualization to pre-experience a future event. This is to make the final goal seem juicier, more tangible, and therefore worth the effort. Whilst we work on self-mastery using Tom's advice, another way to help is listening to people who already have achieved it. In today's episode, we present you with a pilot trainer who has not only mastered himself, but teaches others how. Have a listen to the sorts of things he's going to tell us about the space shuttle challenger it's, it's just amazing it's like when that thing blew up the crew capsule exploded off the shuttle and they said they know from when they recovered it that uh, even after that it's like i imagine the pilots sitting there had absolutely no idea what had just happened but sitting there had realized that they'd lost all electrical power to the shuttle for obvious reasons to us he had no idea, but they know that they know that somewhere between that happening and them crashing into the ocean, that he leaned over and started flicking switches to try and restore electrics to the uh, to the space shuttle. And the guys right. sitting behind him, not pilots, but crew members, they know that the the two guys sitting behind them reached down and had the forethought to turn on their emergency oxygen supply and lean forward and activate the emergency oxygen supply for uh, for the pilots. So you sit there and go, wow, you know, that's just coming back to training. Success for a pilot trainer like Phil is when a crash investigation finds evidence the captain doggedly followed procedures to produce flight all the way to the ground. Demonstrated unnaturally calm reasoning to the very last moment, even when the futility of this seemed entirely beyond debate. To progress as a master of the self, a trainer like this is a good person to learn from. So, let's sit and listen as he tells us about how pilots confront the waves of emotion during an accident. He will also discuss one incident he averted, three plane crashes, and two space shuttle disasters. Phil, would you like to tell us a little bit about the profession? What got you into it? And I'm Phil Wilkes. I'm the 
co-author of Performance Pilot. And as you mentioned, I'm an A330 pilot and trainer with a major legacy airline. I've been flying for around 37 years now. I've got over 14,000 hours in my logbook the last time I checked. And uh, to answer your question about how I got into it, I think I'm like a, a lot of pilots. It's uh, something that I can't remember ever having wanted to do anything different. Yeah, it's like, you know, every day I go to work. It doesn't really feel like going to work. I mean, I think well, just like everyone else sitting there on a Sunday night and probably sitting there going, I don't want to go to work tomorrow. But uh, once we're there, it doesn't feel like work at all. So happen to uh, get paid to do my hobby on a daily basis is the way I like my background is apart from that it's like I, I started to learn to fly in general aviation and ended up in the Royal Australian Air Force as a pilot there and as I mentioned now I'll fly for a, a legacy carrier. Just briefly because it's an investing podcast we wanted to know what was the last investment that you made and or decided not to make and why did you do that? Sure. My wife has her own business, Melbourne Property Staging, and uh, in, in here in Melbourne, she stages properties for people wanting to uh, to sell their homes. And over the last 12 months, she's been rapidly expanding her business. So I've had no option but to be in all of my investing has been into her business as she's needed more furniture and more warehouse space, etc. So you know, I've been a bit tied into that. We also run a bit of a property portfolio. And over the last 12 months of had her go in and renovate around three of those properties to try and increase their uh, rental incomes once again, so that we could pour it back into her business. So that that's our big investment for the last 12 months is just more and more into her business. Investing in my wife, as I call it. <laughs> okay, so let's start on the uh, pilot related questions. So the first one is that both investors and pilots use checklists. It'd be good to hear about pilot checklists specifically from foundations and training as a new pilot up to the procedure before flying a large commercial passenger aircraft. Sure. Well, I think that really when thinking about checklists that pilots use, they can fall into two main categories. The first one would be like pure sort of procedural checklists, which are the sort of to-do type checklists. And when you mention from building from learning to fly to say being in an airline like myself, they'd be the ones that you'd be exposed to first, probably just purely because of the, that you're learning to fly single person aeroplanes. So there's no one to read checklists out to you doing it yourself. So they'd be more like along the, I mean, pilots love mnemonics for remembering things. So they have like funny names like clear off and bump foe and puff just to, as, as an aid memoir for, for the guys to actually go, well, what do I need to do next? What do I do? need to do next. The other sort of checklist I think that pilots use a lot would be more the challenge response type checklist or written checklist. Certainly in a multi-crew environment, that, that's what we mainly use. Aircraft are much more complex. So where they'd sit in the hierarchy is that we do a lot of things instead of using checklists to do them. So we'd run through and do a whole stack of procedures in a flow pattern so that we know where we're going next and at the very end of it have a challenge response type checklist to make sure that we would ticked all the boxes. Quite often these are a lot shorter than the flows because they're only checking safety critical items. So they might be only three or four items long, yet you've checked dozens and dozens of things. I mean, a really good example would be coming into land. You know, you'd turn the landing lights on for landing, but that, that would be part of your flow to turn the lights on, but it's never going to be in a checklist because uh, okay. having the landing lights on is not going to make an ounce of difference of whether you land safely or not. But you could be rest assured that the flaps and the undercarriage are in there. That, that's a whole different kettle of fish. 
The other reason that we'd have those, those the, using the written checklist is for stuff that you don't do every day, starting an engine on ground air or ground electricity rather than the aircraft equipment or emergency type checklists where, you know, they work as an algorithm to say, try this now, try this now, try this, you know, stuff that you don't do every day. And, and, and especially in the emergency situation that you can't afford to get wrong. You can't rely on your memory to do it because, you know, some of those steps might be critical to be done in a certain order. So maybe the two types of checklists we use, procedural checklists like as a to-do item and, and the other one, which is to actually tick items off after we've done it. You said the word mnemonic. Could you, yep. is, is that like an acronym? Yeah, so basically taking the first, or a letter to indicate each uh, part of the checklist, like a, a really simple one would be BUMPFO, which is a downwind checklist that you learn in general aviation, which you, the, the brakes are off, the undercarriage is down, that your mixture master and magnetos are on, fuels checked, all temperatures and pressures, hatches and harnesses secure. And there you go, I haven't done that one since I was like 16 or something. And yet I still, <laughs> you still remember, it's just like, a, what does B stand for? What does U stand for? What does M stand for? It's nice to have a real pilot checklist recited on the podcast. <laughs> oh, so those, those sorts of checklists that you, that you know when you're learning to fly, I'm sure that they're some checklists that pilots never, ever forget. And that's the whole point of the mnemonics is that you're not supposed to forget them. So that's a little bit of the difference between investing in shares and using a checklist and also pilot's checklist. One is essential as a pilot to make sure that you don't forget things because there's a safety risk there. Whereas with investing, you have the luxury of time. You may not necessarily need a mnemonic as long as you've got it written down. That leads to the next question, which is around fundamentally What's the point of checklists? I'll answer in two parts. It would depend on the, the type of checklist, like the to-do type checklist that I mentioned more for single pilot operations would be procedural type checklists that are written down, the things that you don't do every day. It's like, it's basically a checklist. It's like a, okay, a to-do list if you want. So of items that you need to do in order. And then there's the other checklist like that I mentioned that safety critical phases of flight that would go after a, a flow pattern. And they're more like as a last line of defense to make sure, as I mentioned with the landing light example, there's probably a, a, you know dozens of things that you go into a flow, for example, for getting the aircraft ready to depart. But the actual things that we're checking on that checklist in our challenge response checklist is very, very short. Maybe, you know, some of the ones I think for takeoff in an A330 is only like about four or five items long, wow. similarly for the landing checklist. But you can imagine there's a lot of stuff that's actually gone on between the top of descent and there, but they're just like, it's, a, it's the last line of defense, you know. So that would be the two main reasons for the checklist as either a to-do list or as a last line of defense. So then what are some examples from your own career of what has been averted by going through a checklist or other systematic flight preparation process like what you're following up below. When you talk about things being averted, I mean, especially for the uh, for, for the checklist in the uh, as a last line of defence. I mean, that's the that's their whole reason for living is uh, is to um, to to avert things. So you know, to think of a, a one example of a checklist averting something that's really hard because if you do your checklist properly, then that's exactly what they're there for. I think the important thing with checklists is to use them for, for what they're, they're made. And uh, that is to actually check stuff. And I mean, that sounds really, uh, that sounds like, well, what the hell is he talking about? Because it just sounds like very basic. But I'll give you an example. It's like, a, it's very easy when you're running these same checklists every single day, and you usually have done all the flows to just give lip service to the checklist 
just to, you get the challenge and you do the designated mouth music back that you would normally do in that situation rather than actually checking it. An example of that when I was on pilot's course in the Air Force to make sure that we were actually checking things. The checklist, for example, on a go around said that we had to check the all temperatures and pressures were within limits. And instead of being able to just check that they're in the green bands, which would indicate they're in limits, so our instructor knew that we were actually checking they're in within limits. We actually had to read out what the temperature was and read out what the pressure was. You know, take the time to interpolate that data down the track, once you'd prove yourself, then they'd let you just say in the green. But even then, just to make sure that you did actually look at it and not just say it, they would quite often pull a circuit breaker for that gauge from their, from their cockpit so that it, so there was no indication on the gauges. So just so yeah. if you just said, well, if you're checking it, then you should see that that's not there. Yeah. I guess the other part of your question with processes, you know, because that's checklist. I mean, they should just pick up that stuff and avert stuff. But it, I guess where we avert things from happening probably is more in having systemic processes and uh, practices around what we do, like the flows, linking things together. A very big thing that we talk about in aviation at the moment is emphasizing that our primary responsibility on the aircraft is to manage and monitor the flight path. So, you know, we plan what we're going to do, implement it, but then we need to assure it and make sure that we're aware of the energy level at all phases of flight. Just to give you an example of of, of how this works. I can think back to my Air Force days when I was a very junior aircraft captain and flying into Coffs Harbour, I think we were at night or in cloud. I remember that co-pilot, his duty to uh, write down the, the data that we'd use to make a safe descent into Coffs Harbour. Having a look at, at, at that table, he'd written down some heights and which we were descending to. And I'm thinking, been around Coffs Harbour before, I'm sure there's mountains on the, on the side that we were in the, uh, the in, inland side. And I go, these heights seem awfully low for, for the mountains around there. And this is the sort of thing with the processes, the questioning. It's like, you know, as the aircraft captain, it's like, it's his responsibility to write that data down. But everyone has a collective responsibility for the flight path assurance. Then my role in that would be to sit there and go, well, I'm going to check that as well. And I'm going to so I hand it over to him and realize that, uh, that he'd missed one little bit of data that was, was a very poorly designed chart and hidden amongst some grayscaling or something was a, a higher height and he just missed that all together. So that's very much uh, where just our normal procedures of checking each other averted us like uh, flying into ground. Applying pilot checklists to investing. An individual investor could develop a series of mnemonics representing each step in their decision-making and bias avoidance framework. They could use these mnemonics before an investment decision is made so that they do not deviate from the framework. In a team setting, people might conduct their business analysis flows and then once a decision is made from this, other team members can challenge them with a checklist to make sure the basic requirements for a sound investment are met. An example might be that the enterprise value of the business is below a certain multiple of operating income, regardless of how attractive the business is in other respects. In this way, investors could use challenge response checklists as a last line of defense like pilots do. This would be the equivalent of avoiding flying into ground like Phil stated he was able to avert by challenging his first officer's work.
Warren Buffett, one of the most famous investors of all time, he said that success in investing doesn't correlate with IQ. What you need is a temperament to control the urges that get other people into trouble. What are some examples of how pilots manage the impact of urges on behavior? Yeah, it's like, you know, when you say urges and, and, and you're talking about like they're making mistakes there, it's like a, that very much brings to mind another thing that we talk a, a lot about in flight training at the moment, which is uh, dealing with startle and surprise. A lot of accidents have resulted, fortunately not in Australia, but certainly overseas from pilots thinking that either having a situation and mismanaging it, like Air France 447 would be a classic example. The education around some of the things that happened to those guys has gone ahead leaps and bounds just in the time I've been training on the A330. So I think those guys really took one for the team in some ways. But Can you, you know, summarise that disaster? The Air France 447, that was the one out of South America where they had their pedo tubes ice up and basically mismanaged it to the extent that they stalled the aircraft without realising they'd stalled it and flew it all the way down to the water in a stalled condition from something that was quite manageable. Certainly, it's like without wanting to speak ill of the dead, it's like a, it was mismanaged, but also I think at the time that a lot of Airbus pilots wouldn't have had the knowledge around some of the things I was seeing. Like the guys were having stall indications and overspeed indications at the same time. And, and I don't think the education was there at the time to necessarily that they would be able to have realised why that was happening. Certainly, I know that just in my time on the Airbus, we've had a lot of education around that incident. So I think that there's a lot of things that worked against those guys as well from an education standpoint that that have been addressed now in the industry. Yeah, certainly there's events like that where maybe the guys reacted quickly. And there's been a, certainly a lot of events with stall, especially where aircraft are stalled and pilots have either overreacted or they've incorrectly thought they're in a stall and reacted to that. So we have a lot of training these days around startle and surprise to actually, before you do anything, is one of it, it comes back to this awareness thing, being aware that startle and surprise, it can freeze you for a second and, and, and to have ways around this. And we talk a lot in flight training about how do you get around startle and surprise, which I think is that urge thing that you're talking about. I think that that first thing, one is like to be aware that it happens, but then we have processes in place to drive us out of that. And the first one is to, we just get guys very much, and it's like, it's in all the Boeing and Airbus manuals for a lot of these big events is to, first of all, recognize what's going on. So not just react and do something, but to sit there and actually take the time, because it might seem like an eternity while you're doing, but not really in, in real time to sit there and go, to recognize what's actually going on. But then, because of there's been incidents where guys have overreacted to something that they've misseen, is to get confirmation from the guy sitting next to you or to confirm yourself using more than one source of instruments that what you're recognizing as the situation is actually happening. But then we tell the guys, and this is huge, is to sit there and to breathe, sit on your hands and then think your way out of it. And, as, as, and you're talking about like the temperament. It's like how it is. we do a lot of training around these non-technical skills, the human factors side of stuff like communications, leadership and management, decision-making, situational awareness, workplace management, to be able to have the spare capacity and to be able to be situationally aware to work our way through these things and to put in place structures. We do a lot of training on these sorts of events to give the guys structures that they can lean back on 
because for most things that go wrong in an aeroplane, you have time to make an analytical decision, to go yeah. through a decision-making process. It's like most things do not require you to react straight away. That's how we overcome the urge is be aware through training and theory that you do have time to make a decision. So let's have a process to go through. So, okay, something's gone wrong. I'm going to shit, you know, panic. Okay, now let's work through the process. Is it that to counteract urges or reactions, yeah. the yeah, first so don't is to engineer a pause. You want yeah. a pause in, in the reaction. You want a pause in behavior. You want a pause in thinking. And also yeah. you want to leverage the, the fact that some, the person sitting next to you may not have responded in the same way, may not have felt the same urges. Yeah. And, and then the other thing is it's like a... If you think about like a hierarchy of skills, it's like with knowledge being the base, like any procedure or any of this higher level non-technical skills, the observable skills comes from a, a solid knowledge base of systems and procedures and, and to understand why it all goes together. Because sometimes it's like, because usually the way out of, once you recognize that there is actually something going on, it's, and this is why pilots tend not to panic it's like you watch any of the air crash investigation things where guys have uh, survived an incident and they talk to the pilots and quite often it's like their initial reaction is like oh it's, it's very funny usually their reaction is like this can't be happening to me this isn't for real and then it's like and that's the startle surprise and then you sit there and they go oh well what can we do now and even if it's not written down like i was, saw a classic example would be the cafe 780 i think it was going into hong kong and they had fuel contamination out of Indonesia and just suddenly lost both engines. And in the interviews with the pilots there, it's like, oh, I can't believe this is happening to me. This can't be happening. We can't make Hong Kong. Okay, what are we going to do about it? It's just like to sit there. And the first officer, I think, suggested they do the ditching checklist because they go, well, at this stage, you're not going to make it back to Hong Kong. So let's do the ditching checklist. And the captain specifically said in an interview, he goes, while the first officer was running the ditching checklist, he said, that gave me time to think. What, and because there was no checklist to deal with exactly what was going on for them. And he goes, all right, what do we do now? Right. Well, the guys who had the uh, all engines flame out, um, I think it was uh, British Airways 9 coming down to Perth, where they went through volcanic ash and lost all four engines. And once again, yes. you see the interview of the cabinet, he goes, I could not believe this was happening to us. I thought, I can't believe we've lost all four engines. This can't be happening. Oh, we have a checklist for that. We've done it in the sim. But then at the end, he said like, but the, the aircraft didn't react like it did in the simulator. He goes, so all right, well, what else can we do? And it's that guys had processes in place. And it's, you quite often see that even, even at the worst possible times that we have this saying in, in flying, it's like, yeah, you should fly the aircraft to the scene of the accident. Keep flying, keep flying. And you see these guys just, running through the processes, every time you hear, and I can think of a classic example of just like, a, you just imagine guys falling back to their training, falling back to their processes, the space shuttle challenger. It's, it's just amazing. It's like when that thing blew up, the crew capsule exploded off the shuttle. And they said they know from when they recovered it that uh, even after that, it's like, I imagine the pilots in there had absolutely no idea what had just happened but sitting there had realized that they'd lost all electrical power to the shuttle for obvious reasons to us. He had no idea, but they know that they know that somewhere between that happening and them crashing into the ocean that he leaned over and started flicking switches to try and restore electrics to the, uh, to the space shuttle. And the guy sitting behind him, not pilots, but crew members, 
they know that the, the two guys sitting behind them reached down and had the forethought to turn on their emergency oxygen supply and lean forward and activate the emergency oxygen supply for, uh, for the pilots. So you sit there and go, wow, you know, that's just coming back to training. And I, and I guess that's a really good, like in those time critical things, it's like where you don't, there are some time critical things where you don't have time to make an analytical decision and you're going to fall back on cue-based stuff. But a lot of our cue-based decision-making in itself, there's, there's probably a checklist for it or there's probably something you've seen before. So if your knowledge base is there, you know, that's a, uh, you know, being aware that, okay, I can get over startle and response by falling back on my training. And I think that that, that, that space shuttle thing, that's just a, an amazing example of guys falling back on their training to sit there and go, don't know what's happening, but we've lost electrics. Let's get it going again. The number one is to be aware and, you know, which comes from education in human factors and especially that startle response to say like, hey, something's gone wrong. Okay, well, you know, I know from my training that things do go wrong. Well, I'm in a bit of a panic here. Okay, I know from my training that that's quite normal. Okay, so what do we do about it? Okay, I remember in my training that when you're in this situation, yeah. I should think, is there a checklist I can run? Okay, is, so, is so basically, I guess the training in a way is fearlessly about placing yourself in as many possible scenarios of how things could go wrong. So if you're already exposed and you've already gone through analytical process during a disaster, really, so that you're, you're almost mentally through it. About, you're saying like put yourself through a million different training scenarios. It's really interesting. It's like there's been a real movement in flight training. We used to do a lot of stuff that was basically around set plays. If I can give an example, it picked the most performance critical time to have the biggest failure and train to that. So an example would be, we used to like train and test a lot for guys having an engine failure right at decision speed and make them fly out of it. So either, you know, you'd be just shy of decision speed on takeoff and they'd have an engine failure. And so they had bought the takeoff at high speed and bring it to a stop on the runway. Or alternatively, they were just after decision speed, in which case they're committed to the takeoff. And so from a performance standpoint, from an aircraft, that is the most critical phase. You've got the longest time to go until you take off. You're at the slowest speed you could possibly be to continue that takeoff. So all of the performance factors are working against you in, in that scenario. However, from a piloting perspective, it's the easiest time that you could have that failure because we have this, the V speeds in place, like our decision speeds on purpose. It's like, there's no decision making to be made. It's a pure Q-based decision. It's like, I'm over V1, I'm continuing. It's like, there's, it's a no brainer. And from a um, management standpoint, although it's performance critical for the aircraft, you're on the runway, you can see down the runway, you can keep it straight. You can do, put a lot of things in place before you've even rotated the aircraft. What's uh, much harder to fly, but a lot better from a performance perspective is that as you're actually rotating, so you're already well above the decision speed, you're at flying speed and you're actually in the air is to have an engine failure then. As the nose lifts up and you fly into cloud or you've lost the visual horizon, that is a much harder thing from a piloting perspective. So there's a lot of movement away from these set plays. And the same with the, the, the abort. If you have an abort at low speed, sometimes with the, the thrust, it's actually harder to keep it in a straight line than at a high speed because you don't have the aerodynamic forces on the tailplane. So as far as looking at a million scenarios, I guess now what we're doing is looking at different scenarios rather than having these set plays which are performance critical what we do, tend to do now is maybe have trained scenarios that are less performance critical but 
require a bit of thinking. Like the answer's not clear cut. Like, I mean, mm. there's nothing more clear cut. Engine failure on takeoff at V speed. I'm going to continue. I'm going to get it into the airborne. And you've probably got a set play in your head of how you're going to get it back onto the ground, which you would have briefed before you departed. So everyone on the crew already knows that you don't need to tell them. You would have briefed it because we always are briefing for the threats and yeah. how we're going to mitigate against those. So everyone on the crew would know. So now what we tend to do instead is we'll, we'll have scenarios where there's no clear cut answer. It'll be an innocuous failure where out in the cruise somewhere and it'll be like, well, do we continue to destination? Do we turn back? If we're going to turn mm. back, where are we going to go? Um, with this failure, you know, it might be a partial thrusting. So how are we going to treat this? Are we going to leave both engines running? Are we going to shut one down? And it's, it, it's, you know, something that there's no checklist specifically for that. And there's a lot of decision-making. The training now is a lot less, is rather than looking at a million different things. And so having set plays for every single thing you do, a lot of the training now is more as like, okay, let's chuck something up that there's no set play for and get you to think your way through it. And then what we'll be doing with the guys afterwards, it's like, you know, we, we, we don't care how they come to their decision or necessarily what the decision is. It's like, you know, I've seen times running simulator sessions where, you know, we give the guys a scenario and they've landed at a completely different airport to what I personally would have done. Yeah. And, uh, and you said, they go, well, you know, well, how did you arrive at that decision? And, and yeah. you know, they talk their way through and say, well, what went well? What didn't go well? what would you do differently next time? And the whole idea is for them to sit there at the end of that session is not for me to pass any judgment on what I would have done, but to get them to evaluate their decision, how, if they were happy with their decision, if there's things they would have changed and not about that particular decision, but about the process. And that's very much what we're training towards now is awareness of the human factors and to come up with processes so that in the event that they have that real black swan event, it's not saying, I have never seen this thing before simulator or in all real life. I don't know what to do. It is recognizing what's happened, confirming what's happening, and then going through an analytical decision-making process to and prioritizing using everything they've learned in these scenarios to fall back, to revert to their process, to their structure. Yeah. And that's, you know, we're very much now about management structures is like, to have, and not just like for the airline to sit there and go, this is the management structure that you will use, but for guys to arrive at the management structure that works for them, their process, so that it doesn't matter what the failure is or what the event is, they can sit there and go, all right, I'll, I'll, work, I'll work my process, work my process. Applying urge management to investing. We can improve by training ourselves to anticipate being startled and surprised when the markets crash or when the value of a business that we own drops a lot. We can further train ourselves to check more than just the stock price before reacting and, for example, selling. Instead of the share price, we could check other indicators of the value of a business. Examples are the latest balance sheet, income and cash flow statements, and the trends within these over the past decade. We can also have others do the same checks to ensure it's not just us that's getting concerned about the business. Jason Zweig, a well-known Wall Street Journal columnist, says that all successful businesses had a massive drawdown at some point. For example, after the tech bubble crashed in 2000, Amazon's share price dropped 92% from the end of 1999 to the end of 2001. Over the next 20 years, however, 
it went up 4,000%. No one would have held through Amazon's 90% drop without looking at something else than the stock price. If we were taking a pilot's approach, something else we could look at on our instrument panel would be net sales. In 1999, this was 1.6 billion, 2000, it was 2.7, and 2001, it was 3.1 billion. So, over the period that one instrument, the stock price, said the plane was crashing, another instrument, net sales, said the plane was flying higher at a rate of 25% compounded annually. Investors can learn from pilots by using other indicators than the share price, like the trend in number of subscribers or customers, information from the financial statements and the judgment of others before, through being startled by a sudden price drop, selling a position. Okay, I think that's a neat enough segue into the next question, which is what do pilots and airlines do to foster the right temperament? And I think we've begun to cover that as well. But yeah. Yeah. It's really a threefold approach, possibly from the airline's perspective, right from the get-go would be recruiting and aptitude. You know, these days, HR departments tend to hijack the agenda a little bit for targets that they're targeting. But certainly in the past, uh, where pilots were interviewed by pilots for the job, there's, I guess they were looking for that aptitude to a certain aptitude. But beyond that, I mean, there's nothing that, that you can't, I'm very much believing in the modeling that, you know, that uh, even if you don't have those skills at the start, they're all, and that's very much the way that we're going with human factors is that they're observable skills. They're things that can be trained. It's like, you know, you could be a crappy communicator or have poor situational awareness, but it's not to say that, that that's your aptitude and that's how you're always going to be. They, they're, they're trainable skills. And that's why we're calling them skills now that we can train decision-making. We can train workload management and all of those skills. So that would be the second tier was uh, apart from recruiting people that can do this stuff would be then to educating people. And as I mentioned before, the hierarchy of skills without the knowledge, you can't have any of those higher level skills like processes and the non-technical skills. You need that knowledge base to begin with. And then the last bit would be training. I think that we've talked a lot about, about that. The training is to do scenarios so that people can put in processes, they can practice their decision-making, practice all their skills and build upon it so that if they ever have that black swan event that uh, you know they've got something to fall back on. I think that's recruiting, education and training. Applying temperament management to investing. We can try to recruit investors that have an unnatural calmness in the face of circumstances that would cause emotional overrides in others. But if we have no luck with this, we can use human factors research to educate people about temperament. We can educate them about how the body and mind naturally react to big unexpected disasters. Then we can train them. So biases can affect investors' decision-making. So, for example, the authority bias can make people blindly follow heroes' investing methodology. Mm -hmm. But for pilots, could there be a confidence bias? Are there other yeah. biases that... Once again, there's a lot of like uh, education that goes into the bias. I mean, for, for a long time, we've talked about biases, um, some big ones in flying, um, groupthink, confirmation bias expectation bias you see something because that's what you're expecting even though that's not what's actually happening i guess like the checklist is one there with the giving lip service to checklists but group thinks a big thing where you 
talk yourself into something. And uh, so I guess that, and once again, it comes to the thing with education and knowledge, it's, you know, a big thing for overcoming the biases is being aware that they're there. Just by purely being aware of it, if you suddenly sit there and go, uh, I think this and everything, oh yeah, I think that as well. Oh yeah, I can see where you're coming from. And you start to have a bit of a group thinking going on. It just takes one person to go, hang on a minute, this is sounding awfully like group think. And to question that to, you know, create, and this is the thing that aircraft captains to do is create this environment where people feel free to speak up and say, well, hang on a minute, dissenting view here. And especially for our younger crew members that sit behind us, the, you know, captains in training i think really it's like once again the captain's not necessarily going to have the answer and they need to create the environment that the the guy sitting behind you it's that they feel that as the least experienced guy on the crew and some of these guys are come you know they might be brand new in the company but for them to feel that they can speak up and go uh, i've got a dissenting view from you guys i'm seeing this differently for them to realize that you know that there can be this, you know, authority bias where they're sort of going, well, for them to be aware that, okay, just because he's the captain, just because he's the first officer, they're not necessarily the font of all knowledge. My idea is valid and I'm going to express it. So I think that's, that's the first bit is just the awareness that, of these things. The, I mean, awareness, the knowledge of the human factors is, is just key there to overcoming this, to be aware so that you can sit there when you're making a decision that, uh, that that it might be biased. Um, certainly around, I'm not sure how much investors look into this, but I know the airlines that they were doing some work on uh, bias training. I'm not sure how far that's gone. It was in a trial stage where they had some management pilots and trainers and other key staff going through bias training. And that was a basis for that was to sit there and say, everyone's biased. All of our decision-making is biased in certain key areas. And it's impossible to not do that. But by being aware that there were, there were certain questions you could ask yourself to, and there are certain processes you could go through to try and eliminate that bias. And so I think that's, that's something that will probably, I think that might be somewhere where aviation training goes with the biases is to, uh, to put some of these tools in place for certain questions to be asked at certain stages to make sure that bias hasn't crept in. Yeah, Ben and I did a value investing course last year and the professor had the same message for us and his textbook had, I think, a list of 16 biases yep. that we go through. It takes about 15 minutes if you really take it seriously. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you go through each of those and just challenge yourself or even better, if you have someone else that you're making the decision with, they challenge you on each of these potential biases and you have to give an answer for each one before you go ahead with the, the investment decision. Yeah, I know that's it. And that's the thing. So there must be tools out there because I know the tool that that, I, that I'd seen was uh, very much along those where there was one of the biases was um, proximity bias that you'd sit there and say, well, you know, everyone's sitting there in their own state with all of their people. They've got one dude or another base somewhere else in the country and they've gone, oh, we're all here. Well, surely we've got the answer and to sit there and go, well, hang on a minute. We're all in the one place. Maybe we should ask Sydney what they think because maybe they've got a different take on it. And yet there was really simple things like that to be able to sit there and going, what is unique about this situation that could be causing a bias? And, and it would have, you know, certain questions or processes to go down to try and eliminate those. Yeah, I was just looking up this list of biases. We've got impetuosity, weakness, affinity, reciprocity, anchoring, authority, availability, yeah. clever. Affinity biases, is, is that the one where you sit there going like, well, I like you and we're mates, so therefore yes. I'm putting more weight on what you yep. say than the other guy. 
Yeah, or it might, like affinity is also patriotism. So you might be biased towards uh, investing in a business from your own country yeah. versus mm-hmm. one you don't like, even though the other business is actually better. So there's, yeah, there's incomprehensibility. So you'd like it more, you're biased more towards buying those, that, that business because you don't understand it, because it might make you feel clever, for example, because yeah. you can explain to others how you still manage to invest in something nobody understands. So there's all sorts of things. Consistency, confirmation, hope, scarcity, hotness. Yeah, so, yeah. I think so. I think that's a thing. It's like by being aware of these things, it's like you know. And I guess like a really good example is like to be aware as guys sitting in the front two seats of an aeroplane is to sit there and go, well, the guy behind you may, you know, he may be really inexperienced or she may be really experienced. But the other thing is, it's like even though they're new to the airline, they may actually be a very experienced operator from wherever they've come. So. You know, it's it, to be sit there and go, hey, look, I've been in my airline for twenty something years. It's like, and the guy sitting next to me has been here for over thirty or forty years. This new guy's been here for two months. What you know, what have they got of that's of value? But you know, the the whole bias training, be aware of like they may very well have something. You know, it's like I shouldn't discount them just because they don't have the experience overall or in this airline. Let's hear what they've got to say. You know, and I, I think that's. That's, you know, to answer the question of how do we overcome biases, I think it's number one, being aware that they exist, and number two, having processes that and procedures that that uh, do that. And certainly within the airline environment, and this is going back a long time, even when I was in the Air Force, they already had procedures around this, was to put in place tools that especially, that for the uh, more senior guys to make sure they listen to the more junior guys to try and level the cockpit gradient so that everyone, although there's a captain there in charge, but everyone has a, has a say. I mean, the captain makes the final decision, but everyone's listened to, but also for captains to create that environment that everyone thought they could listen. And then even like airlines to go to the extent that for the junior guys put in place, um, specific language around this exact thing for to so that people are heard to overcome bias you know, um, you know, an atmosphere of, of inclusion the themes i'm getting from you are being inclusive being humble being mentally flexible these are all actually basic this is how parents are supposed to raise their children this is how we're all supposed to be as, as good people and it's it's yeah. nice to get these it's... themes coming out from you in how to be a, a high, high and that's the thing but i think part of it is Part of it is like the knowledge that these biases exist and be open to all those things you're saying. But I, I think it certainly helps when there's tools around that. And one of the tools is like, for example, the airlines have uh, language for raising concern and escalating language. Um, you know, the famous one you'll probably see a lot in the airlines after raising concern, go, hey, look, you know, I'm a bit concerned about this. And then if you ignore it, asking questions saying, why are we doing this? You know, and then getting up to the stage, you go, I don't think we should be doing this, you know, raising, you know, being concerned. And at the end, it's like the, we term it emergency language, which is like, no one's listening to you. And it's like, captain, you must listen, you know, not even written down, but it's like, if, uh, if you're ever flying an airplane and, and, and you were ignoring the guy behind you and he said, captain, you must listen, you must go around. Then I, I, you know, any airline pilot with their salt, they wouldn't be there anymore. They'd be in a go around. And so, so, well, what did you see? What, you know, it doesn't matter if the guy could be completely off the tree, have made a mistake, but you know, that's where our thing is to be realized that, you know, that there are biases and that people should be listened to and to create that environment is to that emergency level language. You don't even question, you just do whatever the guy wants you to do and you sort it out and he goes, 
you didn't have the undercarriage down and go, well, we did. You can see it right there. But never mind. That's why we've got the emergency language if everyone's not happy. Yeah. Because, you know, as I've said to second officers before, I say, if at any stage you see something that you feel will save my license, please feel free to tell <laughs> please. me. Yeah, please go Into ahead. Into my ego, but save my license. That's right. It's like, right. I don't care. At any time you feel uh, the, the need to protect my pilot's license, go right ahead. Yeah. 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 Wow. So that's part of the training is that, that hierarchy of language, is it? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a specific, like a, um, I know the airline I fly for calls it um, managing upwards for when a more junior guy does it. And um, they, you know, and then there'll be certain language around the escalating levels of concern. We have an acronym for it at the airline I fly for. The, the top level of which is emergency language, which is just, you yeah. know, stating uncategorically do this now and then and everyone understands that you'll talk about it later. It might not have been the right decision, but if it's, if, if it's the safest thing to do, then we'll err on the side of safety. Applying bias management to investing. There was a big focus here on the authority bias. There was even a specific name for the kind of language used to overcome it, managing upwards. There are plenty of large egos in the investment world, so it is useful to learn from pilots here. Train the team to recognize the four escalating levels of language for raising a concern. Foster a culture of keeping everyone's money, but not necessarily egos, intact. It is okay for younger, newer team members to manage upward, as it may in fact improve the leader's ability to do their job. More generally, investment team managers and individual investors should create an environment that minimizes the influence of biases. This can be done through the simple method of training people to be aware that biases exist. Name them. Make a list of their definitions. Have each team member know them by heart. Can you recite the definitions of groupthink, the authority bias, confirmation bias, expectation bias, and proximity bias? Have you called someone in another country to tell them about something you're about to do, just so that someone in an entirely different geographic context can give their opinion, who might not be exposed to the biases operating in your location. A good practice is to systematically review, using a report template, all of the potential biases before making a final investment decision. Write something down for each one, so you really have to think about it. What big things have we missed that pilots do to manage emotions, urges, and biases, and foster the right temperament to reliably land planes filled with hundreds of people? Well, I think that it's funny that question. It's like you mentioned the hundreds of people. It's like I get asked that a lot. It's like you know, do you, uh, you know, how do you deal with the pressure of knowing that you're responsible for those hundreds of lives sitting behind you and I'm going well? I don't know. The most important life in the airplane to me is my own, and it's like. Uh, to put it simply, it's like we're all in this together. It's like if, if the pilots manage to put the aircraft on the ground safely, then we all get to go home. So by default, everyone sitting behind us gets to go home as well. So I don't know if I'm speaking for all pilots. Fair enough. It's, now, it's, now, good to know how pilots really think, Phil. I'll, I'll bear that in mind on my flight tonight. Well, it's like, you know, it takes a lot of pressure off. It's like, you know, probably, uh, you know, because that, that's the thing. It's like if, you know, it's like a... I'm not going to do something crazy and uh, and risk my own life. So it's like by default, it's, you know, because I'm safe, then hopefully, then that means that everyone behind me is safe as well. So, you know, it's... Uh, 
I don't think it, you know, I don't think it would be helpful if you're sitting there going, oh my God, I'm responsible for all these lives. You just sit there and go, okay, well, what do we need to do to, to get there safely? But um, as far as like uh, managing all that sort of stuff and building that temperament, I think that probably uh, three areas, it's like education. I mean, we've talked about that a lot, you know, this like just that whole awareness thing. I mean, in our book, we talk about awareness a lot and how to build awareness, how to develop awareness. But it's just being aware of this, just the, that knowledge base. And especially with the, a lot of the stuff you're talking about is behavioral knowledge, uh, behavioral um, stuff. And so, you know, human factors, there's books on all this. And I know even for investing, there's books written by clinical psychologists and stuff about the, you know, psychology behind investing. So I think it's just that knowledge is key. So that whole education, and for us, it's it's not something that as pilots we train in once. It's like we revisit this annually. We have emergency procedures days where we have hours set aside to just discuss human factors. And quite often it's revisiting stuff we've looked at before. Maybe there's something new that generally it's revisiting, looking at new tools, looking at tools again. Um, every Sorry, time we have I, a... Could I cut in there? Yeah, you've used the, the term uh, human factors a few times. Are you able to uh, define it? So human factors, it'd be all that behavioral type stuff, biases, um, the startle effect, any of those uh, factors where human, the human, but being a human can get in the way of like yeah. performance. So uh, I guess like if you, it's like a lot of the stuff we do in human factors could almost be considered performance coaching if you were putting a, a modern sexy term around it. Um, I guess I use human factors because... That's actually a discipline in psychology. There's a whole sort of body of research about human factors. And that's what we call it in aviation. If you look at yep. anything about aviation psychology, it's all under the heading of human factors. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, but, you know, if you want to put a sexy modern day term around it, especially uh, you'd call it performance coaching. No, we're we're with fine it. with the technical language here. Yeah. I, I, have to, I have to give a plug for performance coaching though, because it's like, uh, if, if I look at my co-author of Performance Pilot, that's what he does. He's an ex-IndyCar driver. And now he's a performance coach, you know, he trains athletes and pilots, race drivers, right up to the, the World Endurance Championship level and Formula 2. Just everything that's just sub Formula One. I think he trains yep. IndyCar drivers, NASCAR drivers. So that's the sort of level of performance he's at. He, he's a performance coach. The, the message I'm getting from you is that in a way, a lot of what you do, and maybe you have a bias towards this because you are in a training role, mm -hmm. but it seems like what you do is you apply human factors research to produce good pilots. Oh, all the time. It's like, it's very much moving in that direction. It's a lot of what we do now is like in that education around human factors. Every simulator session we get, I've got at the airline I fly for, we get our guys in four times a year to train in the sim. And very much we've moved away from checking to training and a yep. heavy emphasis on human factors to the extent okay. that every session will have some human factors discussion items before we go into the sim and we'll reinforce those human factors in the simulator. But we even have like half of our simulator training now is purely dedicated to human factors training is like wow. working on those processes and and our role has moved a lot i guess from the traditional trainer sort of role where you said they're going you did this wrong you did that wrong you did the other thing wrong next time do this 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 and this to being facilitators it's a lot harder job but a lot more rewarding as well i learn a lot but is to sit there and go to the guys okay well um this happened and we ended up in tokyo talk to me about it how did you come to that decision? What went well? 
what, what would you do the same again? What would you do differently? Why did you make that decision? Why did you do that? And you, you really just ask some why questions and the, it's the guys filling in the gaps because it's, and that's very much, I guess, like the part when I said there's three parts to this, uh, where we're going with this is like the education comes first, but then we train it. That's the thing about these human factors, the non-technical observable skills. We've talked to them. We used to call them behaviors. Now we talk to them as skills because they say you can learn communication. You can learn to communicate with intent. You can learn how to decision make. You can learn how to workload manage to buy yourself thinking space, anticipation space, as we call it. So, you know, we, um, we train this now and that's like this. So the first level is awareness in training. Then there's self-awareness of like where your strengths and weaknesses are. And then, that, and I guess the final tier of that is from education training. And the last one is practice is that we don't just do this once. It's like, you know, we annually go in and talk about emergency procedures. We have four simulator sessions a year. We revisit these things. We send the guys packages and the packages will be hundreds of questions about, okay, you're preparing for takeoff. What do you do to manage interruptions? What do you do to manage the workload? When you're in, if you were to have an engine fire or some big emergency, how would you prioritize that? And get guys to question their structures, not say, what would you do? But try and say, what is your process for these things? What is your structure? And get guys to question it and practice it. So it's always that building more knowledge or awareness training it so that they know where their self-awareness of what they need to fix and then practicing that building more awareness so i think i guess like the big thing is it, it just comes it comes down to awareness and and knowledge it's like and i mentioned before the hierarchy of skills is go everything that we do all this higher level stuff we do like procedures and practices and systems and and human factors skills all are based on some foundation knowledge foundation you know knowledge for us of of the aircraft and as its systems but also on human factors and how this all fits together applying these miscellaneous items to investing as a money manager put your own money in the fund and worry only about that not everyone else's likewise if you want someone else to manage your money make sure their money is in the fund too, so as to remove the principal agent problem. Keep up with the latest on human factors research. Use this to educate yourself and the team so they have the right knowledge about how their behavior can be affected by the market. Then train yourself in procedures informed by human factors knowledge so that, for example, biases have a minimal impact on decision making. Then practice the investment decision framework you have decided to use and the ways your training says you should respond to disasters. The practice should be based around particular examples of how human factors affect behavior according to the research. So that segues to our next question, which is around if you were to take those principles, the checklist, the, the processes that you've outlined for pilots and translate that into say a, a team of analysts who are going to yeah. generate an investment portfolio what can we take from pilots and translate into uh, those analysts and um, how they would behave and what sort of investments that they would make okay obviously i think that as i mentioned with the hierarchy of skills you'd have to start at the bottom level which is just having a being educated in your field and 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 not just like a little bit of knowledge but you know how broad can your knowledge be, you know, and I can come back to an awesome example of like systems knowledge in, in, in a minute, 
it's just a, a unbelievable example of like a level of knowledge but having that underlying knowledge of your specialist field then pilots i guess our next level would be uh threat and error management a lot of what we do now is like a threat and error managed that in advance we've already had a had to think it through well what can go wrong here and we thought and how do we mitigate against that so for, for a lot of things there shouldn't be any surprises to a pilot i think that you asked the example before about a go around how would you how would that happen that you arrive somewhere and you suddenly had to go around and go that there shouldn't be a go and suddenly we had to go around it's like you know these things are planned. We would have had a look at the weather before we went. Um, for major airports, update the weather every half an hour for a two or three hour period, depending about where the world in the world you are. So you should know that the chances are that you may have to go around. It's like, so then, on, so you would have briefed it. You would have briefed what you're gonna do. Way back at the planning stage, you probably had extra fuel thinking, when we get to Hong Kong, we may need to go around, let's take extra fuel. Or the weather's really bad in Japan because it's snowing up there, so we may not get in, so let's have fuel to go somewhere else. It's, and, and then, so this whole threat and error management then comes down to being ready. We've got a plan for it. It's like, for us, it's for example, in the, the landing scenario goes like, if you get to land, then that's a bonus. It's like most of our briefing around coming into land is about what happens if we don't get to land? What are we gonna do if we go around? What are we gonna do if we have to divert? Loading up secondary flight plans in the computers so that if we divert, we're ready to go. Knowing what fuel we need to go, okay, if we get down to this fuel, we're, we're out of here, we're going somewhere else. So a lot of that, so that would be the next tier, like education to have already thought through the threats to our plan and, and have strategies in place to implement if that does happen and then having well thought out procedures and protocols to implement, to put our plan in place, the main plan. And then at the end of it, and this is huge, and we talk about this a lot in our book about, because our book Performance Pilot is for pilots wanting to take their flying performance to the next level, be the best pilots they can. And the, the, the big thing that we stress is the, the self debrief, is to sit down and analyze the results, sit down and go, well, and, and not just like what went crappy there, but what went well, so that you can reinforce those to go, well, that went really well, I'm gonna do that again. But if something right. didn't go well, it's to, it's to sit there and sit there and go, not sit there going, oh, as well, I won't do that again, because that's not the way the brain works. If you sit there going, you know, don't fall over, then your brain's just hearing fall over, fall over, you fall over. But it's like, you sit there go, all right, well, I fell over, I don't wanna do that again. What do I need to do differently next time to make sure that didn't happen? Try and rephrase it in the positive as if they go, next time I'm going to do this. Not because it'll stop me from falling over, but you sit there, you build that new practice in. So that, that's a big thing pilots do is debrief, 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 is to analyze the end result and, uh, and reinforce what works well and change what didn't. And, and the end thing of that is that like a part of that self-debriefing is pilots are always evaluating as they go it's like most airlines will have some language structure in place for decision making i know where and and usually that last stage of decision making and i don't think pilots are alone in this anyone that's ever learned anything about decision making there'll always be evaluation phase because uh for example at our airline our first step is to gather information analyze it review it figure out what the best decision is implement it but then evaluate because more information comes to hand you know maybe the decision was made on faulty information is to put that information back in and constantly be reevaluating. A classic example would be like decision making on the fly in that regard would be that uh, if you had an engine fire and you're rushing back to land because like the wing's burning off, then uh, 
that's pretty, you know, that's pretty clear cut. You need to get the aircraft back on the ground right now. But then say the fire goes out. Is, do you need to rush to get the aircraft on the ground now? It's like, that's new information. Well, you look out and see how much charcoal there is on the wing and how much <laughs> of it left, you know. But, you know, I say, okay, so let's say not the, the maybe county. not the wing on fire. Let's say that the engine was on fire, but the uh, extinguishing system worked on the second crack. You fired a couple of bottles in there and it put it out. It's like, is that the same situation? Maybe. It's like, so that's, that's what you have. You have an, an extinguishing system that you can deploy against a specific wing sort of thing. A yeah, specific yeah. part of the wing. Well, we do in the engines. Let's put it that way. Okay. Yeah. But that, but that's the thing. It's like you know, it's like to reevaluate your decision making because it might change things. So you know, okay. that would be things. So like just to, I guess, going back over that to educate yourself in your field, um, and you know, thinking of what pilots could offer is like to be educated in your field to contingency manage, like have thought about the threats and how to manage them, um, have procedures for implementation, and to analyze the end results to see if we can like uh, um, have a better to evaluate things on the fly and then at the end to analyze the end result and maybe update your protocols i liked your point about debrief that's something new at least for our training in our framework for investing yeah it's like and that's one thing it's like you know it's, i had uh, some people have said to me about our book they're going like if of, of any of the things that in your book that 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 you think would be the biggest single thing that anyone could implement right now and and this is for pilots but i said they go this is a performance coaching thing that you know that 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 ross taught me about my co-author and it was just uh, you know from his motor racing background where i'll sit down with a circuit diagram after a race and write down you know uh, sorry a practice session and write down exactly what was happening at every single corner and what everything felt like and you know what they're going to do different different lines or what changes they want to the car and really really pull apart like that entire lap in minute detail and uh and he was very big on like they journalize all of this and that so that's one thing that i say to people and so i think you can do this in any field is that like to analyze it and then and journalize what happened because just the process of going through and really thinking about every step what happened and writing down the good points. And, and the thing I say to people is, but don't write down, don't do this or this went really bad. Don't do that. Maybe put that on a piece of scrap paper, but what goes in your journal is just positive stuff, things that you want to reinforce. So in your journal, you don't write down, I totally screwed this up. You write down what you're going to do next time. So for example, something really simple that I didn't, didn't put the landing lights on, coming back to an example we used ages ago, not very important, but if you want to make sure that you don't do that again, you just you don't write down. Remember to put the landing lights on next time. That's just crap. It's don't like, call yourself an idiot. <laughs> yeah, think of something. Think of yeah, exactly, exactly. But it's like think of something to that you're going to link it to. When I do this, I'm going to do the landing lights because there's nothing negative in your journal then, but you know, okay, I'm going to do that. And that might not work. It's like, you got to go back and sit there going, well, I still forgot to put them out. So that's not a good link. Come up with something else, but it's always trying to think of like, uh, when you're doing this self analysis is not to tell yourself what not to do or tell yourself, like you said, don't tell yourself you're an idiot. Tell yourself. It's, basically, it's using each mistake as information about what needs to be reinforced. Yeah, feedback. It's just the ultimate feedback loop. It's just, yeah. you know, all right, do yeah. something different, do something yeah. different. Yeah. Refinement. Yeah. And that's, I think it's huge. It's like, um, I think that probably, probably the best example of how overboard pilots are in this debriefing thing is uh, the fighter guys. It's like, you know, 
they go out when they do their missions and I think they brief, I'm not sure what the order is, but I know that they do briefings like all, you know, as a whole element that everyone's going out, they do individual briefs for the different parts of the elements and down to the individual crews. And then when they come back, they do the reverse, they debrief the overall exercise and then they go and debrief as elements, they go debrief as their little packages so that they just debrief, debrief, debrief. Those guys do, you know, for a one-hour flight, they probably spend hours and hours and hours talking okay. about it beforehand and afterwards, just wow. to you know go out and be the best they can. So it's a, a good example. I did a, I did a leadership course at work recently, and one of the things that I took away from it was the need to journal and reflect. On, yeah. Um, and one of the things that they say is, I don't know if you do it on a daily or a weekly basis, but they were saying that's critical to become a leader is to, to reflect and on how, whether it's a meeting or a presentation or just the general day, how it went. Reflection's a critical thing to be doing. Yeah, because it's like you're, just, you're analysing skills, really, aren't you? And possibly making observations of how to improve those skills. It's like, I know for myself, it's like when Ross told me, he said, you need to start journalising. We thought, well, how do we make that racetrack thing into something pilots can do? And he came up with this journal idea. It's like uh, I've had like young guys saying to me, "Go, well, how do you how do you improve?" And I'm going, "This is the this is the best thing I can tell you." Is like I've been doing it for what well, we wrote the book about seven years ago now. We put about five years research into it. So, hang on a sec. Yeah, so probably seven years or eight years I've been journalising every single flight that I've done, and it's like it's wow. been the biggest thing in my entire career that's made an improvement is to sit there and critically analyze everything that I've done and then, and come up with something to do differently. And at the start, I used to kind of have pages of like stuff that I want to fix. And now I might like, you know, just have a couple of lines. Cause it's just, I think that you just over time, you just develop procedures that are just so good. I mean, it also helps to be flying the same airplane for 12 years, but uh, <laughs> you know, well, that's great feedback though. I think for investors, for Ben and I to improve our craft, we'll definitely any skill, any skill. And obviously investing is a skill, any skill that you want to improve. It's like, it's like analyze how, how it went. It's like, if you're a trader, it's like analyze every trade. It's like, you know, yeah. What, what did you do good? Okay, well, I'm going to put that in my protocol. Every trade I do, I'm going to do that. Yeah. If something went wrong, so they're going, all right, what am I going to do next time to uh, mitigate against that? So they, next time I'm going to do A, B, or C. It's like for, or, or if you're a property investor, the same. I'm sure that you have a protocol. So imagine that yeah. you go out and you buy yeah. a house and it's just completely rubbish. And you, you sit there and go, well, you don't write down, don't buy rubbish houses. You'd sit there and go, well, why did I buy a rubbish house? And go, yeah. well, I didn't really look at it properly. Well, what could I do differently and go, I could do, I, I should have really paid for a property inspection from a proper building inspector. And, and then so you sort of go, all right, that's the positive takeaway from that is get a building inspection. And so then that would go into your protocol for the next one. So mm -hmm. I guess that, 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 that's how pilots thinking would go about these things and going, well, there's a problem with my protocol because I missed this. What am I going to do differently next time? I think from what you said, it would be great to have a team of pilots as investors. So I don't know about that. You do know, you know, you do know the <laughs> saying that like uh, when pilots and doctors start investing in something, that's the time that everyone else should be bailing. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds pretty convincing to me. <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, it's like, I think that, and the one big thing that I'd sit there and go, and I go on a bit about this, about the hierarchy of uh, skills 
I think everything is based on a good foundation of knowledge. I guess is a bit. I guess is you guys probably would sign on to that. Just the fact that you can these your whole podcast is an educational thing, and I think. Yeah. And I promise that I come back to just a spectacular example of just uh, how uh, a base knowledge. And I mean, it's, it's a pretty sad example. And once again, it's from the, the space program. When the space shuttle Columbia came down, I don't know how much you know about the Columbia. Please tell us. Yeah, tell us about it. That was the one that had the tile damage on launch. So then when it was coming back into the Earth's atmosphere, it's... Um, I had some hydraulic anomalies, not realizing why, but basically I think it was a left-hand wing where it was missing some tiles started to burn away and it burnt into the hydraulic systems. And so I think that the first they knew of it was like hydraulic systems all just plummeted. They lost complete hydraulic power and, and then the shuttle started to yaw off track and just things went completely, uh, I think it went into a ballistic tumble at some stage in, in this yaw. Anyway, when they uh, recovered the wreckage from there, they found like some switching panels and there was some interesting switch positions for some pumps and they're having a look at it and they're thinking, why on earth are these switches in those positions? And they're going, could it have been in the disintegration of the craft that this had happened? And they figured out that these were guarded switches. They were locked down. You had to actually lift a guard to split the switches. They go, there was no way in the G-forces of the disintegration or anything that these switches could accidentally have been switched. So they came to the conclusion that there's, there was no other explanation than that one of the pilots had purposefully selected these switches. As the aircraft, as the shuttle yawed out of control and before it went into its ballistic tumble, that someone had landed crows and deliberately flicked these switches. Now, the switches that were flicked were recirculation pumps for the hydraulic system. And they're just going, it wasn't in any emergency checklist for hydraulic fires. And it wasn't, they couldn't find anywhere in any of their books as to why on earth this would have happened until they found some note somewhere that like a, a residual effect of like turning on these pumps is that, that because they were circulating hydraulic fluid, that it would give some hydraulic pressure to, to there was some residual hydraulic pressure that would, um, go through the system and all they're able to determine is that 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 the pilot somewhere in his depth of knowledge of the craft had gone hydraulic fire nothing else is working this thing's going completely out of control maybe if i turn on the recirculation pumps i might get enough re they didn't know that they were beyond control it's the same as the guy said with the in the in the challenger going i've lost electrical power i don't know how hey let's uh let's switch on some standby electrics although it's probably even that next level of knowledge of the going that nowhere or like sully landing in the hudson where completely outside of the checklist and said well i'm about to lose electrical power because i've lost both engines start the apu for me then run the ditching checklist because he, he said if i do that first I'll, I'll maintain some other systems it's like i think just a couple of classic examples of guys just uh, having a really really thorough knowledge of their of their field and being all on that uh, just incredible circumstances through domain expertise that they're able to demonstrate purposeful action in the yeah. face of incredible adversity which would if you weren't a domain expert would be reduced to a quivering urge driven mess yeah and i think that's the thing it's like you know it's it's just you can't know too much about your subject yeah now. yeah you that, that's a great message yeah you should always be learning since Phil has just been applying what he knows to investing, we don't need to do that here. 
But let's repeat the most important point. Self-debrief, both what went well and what did not. Don't beat yourself up. Use it as feedback to continuously refine a process. Reinforce what worked well and change what didn't. Continuously evaluate. Analyze things on the fly and then the end results so you can use this to update your procedures and protocols. Debriefing is the single most important thing to do. Write a journal entry after each investment decision, both the buyers and the sellers. Write down what you'll do different next time. Okay, we'd like to also cover briefly the travel industry. Flight Centre, Virgin, Qantas, for example, have all been severely impacted by the lockdown. What have you heard about when it will end? How has it affected you and your colleagues? Are there any thoughts you have on the investability of specific airline or travel-related companies? Have you bought any recently? So just a short question. <laughs> uh, yep. Okay. Five seconds. Let me try and pull this apart bit by bit. Have I heard anything? Okay, so I guess, so, well, and you know, how's it affected me and my colleagues? I guess like in Australia, it's uh, depending on which airline you fly for, 80, 90% of airline employees are stood down without pay at the moment because they've got nowhere to go. As far as the industry- a little investing podcast, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I guess like the, uh, oh, get round to that bit. It's uh, the investability. The, the thing is, it's like, uh, um, I guess what we're all holding out for is, you know, I think that like uh, um, there was a conference recently with uh, airline executives and I think that Alan Joyce from Qantas and Paul Scarra from Virgin were both saying it's like we, we need a vaccine or we need rapid testing or we need a cure, like something has to happen. And the other big things is I know there's a lot of companies you mentioned there, like uh, you didn't mention Hello World, but I think Flight Center, Qantas, Virgin, they've all gone in and I'm not sure about if everyone's doing it, but at least on the Qantas website, it's, I think back a few days ago, they had 40,000 signatures of asking the states to take a medically based rule set around border openings instead of this uh, hodgepodge it is at the moment to actually put some science behind it and come up with some protocols. I know we're getting 4,000 signatures a day. I saw something just yesterday, though, I think the last national cabinet that I think that, uh, and I'm not saying that's the airlines and Hello World and all flight centre that have... Uh, push their agenda that's pushed this but i believe the national cabinet now has said yeah actually we do need that we need some sort of national structure around about how we open borders because at the moment no one can plan so uh, just to put some numbers on it i think that at the moment the airlines are expecting to be back at about 70 percent domestic capacity by this time um the way that borders were going earlier on in the year and we're sitting at 20 percent so um with 70% of the uh, domestic traffic in Australia being along the eastern seaboard, I think the airlines are really hanging out for Queensland to open their uh, borders. It's like that's really holding things up and that's what's keeping everyone... Queensland specifically. Yes, Queensland specifically, yeah. How can people sign that petition that you mentioned? I know that Qantas has got one online because I saw it the other day. It's They had 40,000 signatures and 4,000 per hour they were gaining or something, but uh, yeah. I'm not sure if that's been overtaken now by uh, this national cabinet decision that they will put a, you know, like a, a national approach to border reopening now. So I think that's like, to actually put the language, I just got it here. They're saying that uh, they wanted a national approach to border reopening based on risk assessed medical criteria. And my understanding is that's maybe where the states have decided to go now anyway. So as for investability that you're asking, I think it's a, it's a really hard gig at the moment for listed airlines 
the airline industry is a funny game though because it's a uh, listed airlines like uh, Qantas and Virgin thing, things are really really tough if you have a look at the international traffic into Australia at the moment it's uh, pretty much like uh, well Virgin and Qantas aren't doing it it's because it's they can't afford to they'd be losing money so the only real airlines flying to Australia at the moment are the Middle Eastern Chinese and other Asian carriers that are government owned so what their agenda is is because they couldn't possibly be making money so whether it's a market share ploy or public relations ploy it's uh, you know at the end of the day they're government owned and subsidized and backed so they don't necessarily have to make money so it's uh, so that that that's really hard are you saying in they're fact, cheating <laughs> well in fact it's a bit of a sore point amongst aviation employees in australia like 80 to 90 percent of of aviation employees in, in australia i'm not talking pilots i'm talking about all aviation employees are currently stood down um, the government put in place an international freight mechanism for subsidising freight into the country, but they opened it up for tender. So all your hard-earned taxes are going to, uh, I think there's 15 airlines that have been uh, subsidised by the um, international freight mechanism. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but last time I looked, there's only two Australian-owned airlines that were flying internationally. So that's, uh, you know... So there was a, a chance for our national carriers to do that work, you're saying, but... But there's 15 airlines that have managed okay. to get So you've got, you got big international carriers like Cathay Pacific, which is uh, being subsidised at the moment by the Hong Kong government. You've got Singapore Airlines, a lot of Middle Eastern airlines that are government owned, all being subsidised by the Australian taxpayer to fly freight into Australia at the moment. And I know that is a really, really sore point amongst aviators in this country to the extent that I know that one of the main, there's uh, two big pilot unions in Australia the Federation of Air Pilots and the International Pilots Association, APA. And I know that at least APA, I know the, uh, which is the, the airline um, union for Qantas and Jetstar employees and the, and the subsidiaries. Um, I know that APA actually was uh, put out a release the other day that they'd been talking to the opposition parties saying, fair go, th this international yeah. freight mechanism should not be supporting foreign carriers no. going to Virgin and Qantas so that it's while Australian pilots. And they also took, I think they took the opposition leader to task because he'd been saying that we should be using the Air Force to <laughs> to get people moving. And I think they might have said the question again, all the Air Force employees actually still have a job. There's 80 yeah. to 90% of uh, airline employees that currently are unemployed. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and they, they they mothballed all of the A380s. I mean, I I, I remember doing uh, some back of the envelope maths about how many seats have been taken out of the air because of that, and we've got these twenty to thirty thousand Australians who are trying to get back here. It seems yeah. like the maths says it's an incredibly easy problem to solve. So yeah, it's it's like beyond using the Air Force, we've got the capacity there if they if they they let the, the use the airlines to do it if the government's going to subsidize it anyway it's like that would support a lot more jobs and i think that's what yeah. the are trying to say so but as far as uh, australia is a bit of a unique situation when you're talking about investability it's it's a bit of a weird situation i know that there was a lot of talk when virgin went into administration about oh my god imagine if we just had a monopoly in australia and it's going that that's pretty much apart from the us it's like that's how a lot of the world operates you know there'll be like one carrier i mean i know australia's uh, geography is a bit different but uh, a, a lot of countries don't have the competition that australia does and also it's a little bit unique in that both of the carriers are listed companies as opposed to a lot a lot of well not so much anymore but uh, we're listed companies 
Whereas I, I guess the only, the closest, closest situation like Australia would be the US where they have multiple domestic carriers that are listed companies. They have a, a few different rules that the companies go in and out of chapter 11 over there all the time. They go into chapter 11, restructure out, they come. So as much as like, uh, I guess you said they go investability, you go, oh, does that look good for companies like Qantas and Virgin? that they haven't gone bankrupt, whereas South African Airways did. There's been quite a few companies that have in the US companies going to chapter 11. But the thing is, it's like they, they fly under chapter 11 protection and boom, out they pop the other end. Or like these government owned airlines that uh, they get propped up, you know, it's like when ANSET collapsed and Air New Zealand was a bit responsible, like the New Zealand government dropped money in on Air New Zealand to keep it going. It's like, a, so it's a bit of a weird industry and it's like, if a company goes bankrupt, it doesn't necessarily, or they're losing a lot of money, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to disappear because uh, there's a lot of uh, government subsidised uh, flag carriers around the world. It's, you know, so Australia is a little bit of a unique situation. So We're just all for choice, really. Just to round out that conversation, last question that I had was around the supply chain in the yeah. area. So oil companies, Boeing, for example, who produces the planes. I guess that, that, that is one of the things that is worrying about the current situation with uh, just how bad things are for the aviation industry and for the travel industry is like, you know, the usual joke is that it's like the way to make aviation, money in aviation is to do anything except be an airline. It's like the only companies that seem to not make money out of aviation are usually the airlines themselves. It's like you said, the the aircraft manufacturers and the caterers and the hotels and the ground support things. And especially the, in Australia with the airport monopolies, it's like, have a look at how much money uh, Sydney airports and Melbourne airports make, Perth airport. The airlines are always fighting with Perth airport. Like these monopoly operators, it's like licensed to print money. And But at the moment, the fact that even all of these industries that usually make money, even if the airlines aren't, are struggling just, I guess, is indicative of just how bad the situation situation is at the moment but you know that being said it's like and this is just a personal opinion that talking about uh, things being bad to 2023 or 2024 it's like uh, especially if you listen to the information coming out of CEPI and and some of these people making the vaccines that there's a lot of people that seem to think that there definitely will be a vaccine so uh, you'd see like Qantas the other day did a I think they might have followed the BA lead someone was running flights with empty, or it might have been Singapore Airlines, but someone was running empty uh, flights that didn't actually land anywhere, just the scenics. And so Qantas ramped up one the other day to go and have a look at, do a sightseeing flight within Australia. And it's the fastest selling flight that they've ever had. It went, it was gone in 10 minutes. And that, you know, so I think there's a lot of pent up demand for people wanting to go and see stuff and do stuff. So yeah, I'm optimistic that if we get a vaccine or a cure or some sort of rapid testing, that means we can go flying again, that I'm hopeful that things will pick up a lot faster than what some of the predictions are. But that might be just wishful thinking because I want to go flying again. Yeah, well, we all do. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to try to end things on a, a more humorous note. I'm going to throw you a question that I haven't let you prepare for, uh, Bill. <laughs> so, have you ever done anything that was aerobatic? And if you have, what was the plane? And have you also ever done anything that was aerobatic, but you didn't intend to do something aerobatic, if you know what I mean? Um, oh, wow. What a question. 
It's like, I mean, having been an Air Force pilot, I mean, every Air Force pilot um, learns aerobatics. So, yeah, and it's, I used to run aerobatic joy flights at one stage of my career. So, yeah, I've done, I've done quite a bit of aerobatics. Have I ever done something that wasn't supposed to? It was unintentionally aerobatic. Yeah, unintentionally aerobatic. <laughs> Not that I could think of off the top of my head, but... Uh, That's exactly the answer I would expect from a pilot. Yeah. Yeah, it's like uh, we, tr we try and we try and minimise excitement in our position. It's like um, if you had, ex you know, I guess like a, that's our job is excitement minimisation. Or as one of my mates outside of the industry calls it, he goes that he says that pilots are professional killjoys because we're there to uh, to stop exciting things from happening. Again, though, that just to me drives home the point how useful it is for us as investors to pay attention to what you have to say. Being a privilege for Ben and I and a highlight for our investing career and training to have you along and to share at length what you've had to say in response to our, our questions. So oh, thanks pleasure. very much. Yeah, thanks for having me along. Apart from listening to this interview on repeat, how can listeners find out more about what you've had to say in terms of your internet presence and where to buy your book? Our book, Performance Pilot, is available anywhere you buy your aviation books. <laughs> uh, and we all know where that is. <laughs> yeah, so we most, mostly we sell on Amazon, Performance Pilot. We also have our own website, performancepilot.net, N-E-T. We're on Facebook as Performance Pilot. We also have our own YouTube channel. We don't have a lot of content on there at the moment, but we do have a little bit on mental imagery. It's it's aimed at pilots, but anyone who wants to do, who's interested in mental imagery within sport could certainly uh, get something out of that because it's based on what Ross teaches. He's the performance coach. I think you go have to go a long way to find anyone who's better at mental imagery than race car drivers, especially at the IndyCar level that Ross raced at. So yeah, that's uh, that'd be the main the main ways. Yeah, and I think we've got links to all of them from our website at performancepilot.net. Okay, and we'll definitely put those links in the show notes. So, sorry, Phil, I, I, I can't help myself. I, I've got another aerobatics question. How many seconds does it take to do a barrel roll? Oh, well, Jeepers, that's a, I think that would, I'm just at a guess here. It's like I'd be guessing that um, it's very much driven by uh, what sort of aeroplane you're, you're flying. So if you have a look at, uh, um, if you're talking a barrel roll, where you're actually flying like around in a, a loop and turning at yeah. the same time. So you'd be following a, a, like a corkscrew type shape. If you have a look online, there's some awesome videos online of the, the Blue Angels, the United States Navy and Marine Corps um, demonstration team. And uh, in, in the F-18s that they fly for their displays, uh, the barrel rolls take, I'd say over a minute because you know they they're just going so fast and they chew up so much airspace that they take a long time. But okay. Something like the stuff that you know that, um, for example, the Red Bull Air Racer type guys like Matt Hall, Kirby Shambliss, who appears on the cover of our uh, book. In fact, Kirby, he went out and took some photos, especially for the cover for us, which was nice of him. Yeah, those aeroplanes would uh, get it done in seconds, I think, at barrel. Yeah. Yeah. And yep. there's G-forces and all sorts of things. We, we haven't gotten into the, just the physiological challenges of flying. It's all been the mental stuff, but, you know, not a hell of a lot of G in the airline industry. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Again, it's about minimising that. Yeah, it's been a bit of a while since this fat boy pulled any G. <laughs> Except for maybe standing up out of the chair, perhaps. <laughs> 
I feel like we could go on for another hour. But <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's like once you open the hanging doors, you'll get a pilot to talk all day. <laughs> that concludes our work with a pilot instructor. Let's see who we can listen to next. <laughs>